So this afternoon we are studying what scripture teaches regarding the first commandment, also as summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So let's now read Lord's Day 34. Uh, what is the law of the Lord? And then follows the Ten Commandments, which we read uh, every Sunday morning. So that brings us to question and answer 93. How are these commandments divided? Into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him alone only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the, the least thing against his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. There ends the reading of our confession. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we study God's word uh, this afternoon, as summarized in Lord's Day 34 of the Catechism, we've come to the scripture's teaching on the Ten Commandments. Well, perhaps there might be part of you that does not like studying the Ten Commandments. After all, as we do this, God's commandments reveals the sins of our hearts often, and we might discover parts of our hearts and lives that are not in line with God's law. And that then also means change for us. We are meant to align our lives and our hearts with God's law and his will. And that can be difficult. A life of repentance is difficult. And sanctification, that process by which we, be, we become more holy and obedient, of course, yeah, it's not easy. And yet, at the same time, we must confess that this process is very good. Think of something like surgery. Receiving surgery, surgery or any medical procedure from a doctor might not be very pleasant. In fact, it might be very painful. It can create great discomfort, but it is still good because it brings healing and it brings life and well-being. In the same way, by the process of sanctification, by which we, we become more holy and obedient, the Holy Spirit removes what is evil out of our lives. And he restores what is good, what had been lost. Again, this process might be difficult, but it is supremely good. And that's because sin will always create misery. It's simply the nature of sin. Creates misery. And sanctification, while difficult and at times painful, brings life and peace. I think this is especially true with the first commandment, where God says, You shall have no other gods before me. 
Breaking this commandment is so fundamental to our fallen nature. We are so prone to idolatry in our hearts. Pretty much every sin stems from a breaking of the first commandment. On the other hand, worshiping God alone, loving him with our whole heart, soul, and mind, it brings peace and it helps guard against other sins as well. So that brings us to the sermon theme this afternoon, which is as follows. The God who gave us his good law commands us to worship him alone. We're going to look at three things in connection with that theme. First of all, we'll look at the goodness of God's law. We'll look at the ugliness of idolatry. And finally, the beauty of worshiping only the Lord. So first of all, the goodness of God's law. Now, as we look at the Ten Commandments this afternoon, we should ask ourselves, you know, what place does God's law have in our lives as Christians? What place does it have in the church today? After all, every Sunday morning when we worship here, uh, the Ten Commandments are read, uh, quite close to the beginning of the service. And it's good to ask, why do we do that? Is it just tradition? Is it just because that's the way we've always done it? And as we look around us, we can see that reading God's law each week is certainly not a common practice in the broader Christian world here in North America. And so we might wonder, as Reformed Christians, are we perhaps stuck in the ancient past, forgetting that redemptive history has moved on and we are New Testament Christians? Should we set aside the law of God? But scripture shows us that reading and studying the law and striving to live according to God's commandments should actually be natural for us as New Testament Christians. After all, what does scripture say about the new covenant and one of God's main promises for the new covenant? We can find it in Jeremiah 31 where Jeremiah prophesies by the Lord, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. That's one of the goals of the new covenant. That God's law would no longer just be written on tablets of stone, but that it would be written in here, on your heart. Of course, there's a lot more to the New Covenant than just that. A lot more could be said. But as New Testament Christian, God, God desires to write his law, his commandments, upon our hearts and upon our minds. And by the Spirit, we learn to love God's law more and more. We become Christians like, or that have the attitude like the psalmist of Psalm 119 who express such great, great love for God's law and his commandments. And that's because God's law is very good. And that being said, there are some dangers here when it comes to the law that we need to keep in mind. The first thing we need to understand when we think about the law is that Christ Jesus saves us by his merit uh, before we even obey one of the commandments. 
And this is also why the Ten Commandments are placed in the catechism after the section on our deliverance through Christ. Our study of the Ten Commandments come in the last section of the catechism uh, labeled our thankfulness. We give thankful service to God in light of our salvation. We are saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ, but we are still works in progress. We always will be. None of us here will become perfect in this life. The second thing we must remember is that not, it's not the law itself that has the power to renew us and, and make us love God more and more. No, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the power of sin is the law. What a striking phrase that is. The power of sin is the law. And so the, the commandments themselves don't have, give us the power to obey. That comes from Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ renews us. He renews us by working faith in our hearts, recreating us by the Spirit. And as he renews us, he does cause us to obey God more and more. And by his grace, the commandments increasingly become a delight to us as they are truly good. So as we study the Ten Commandments over the next few weeks, Lord willing, let's keep those things in view. That brings us to the second point. So that's God's law as a whole. And now we're going to focus in on the first commandment, where the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. So God commands us to worship and serve him alone. In fact, we were created to worship God. This is how Lord's Day 3 puts it. We were created in God's image so that we might rightly know God our creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. That's essentially, you could say, the first commandment summarized so well. This is what true worship is. This is why we were created. And our lives were designed to be centered around God. Of course, we know that through the fall into sin, we severed our relationship with God. Well, what happened when that relationship was severed? Did fallen humans stop worshiping? The answer to that is no. Fallen humans just started worshiping created things instead of the creator. You see, we as humans cannot change our fundamental nature. We were designed for worship, for the worship of the Lord. And since we cannot change that fundamental nature, every single human being on this earth is worshiping something or someone even if they profess to be an atheist. The only question is, what is it? Well, most people on earth are worshiping false gods. But what about you? What what or whom are you worshiping? See, worshiping idols is always a temptation. Evil desires that arise out of our hearts lure us into idolatry. That being the case, we should learn to spot what the worship of idols looks like. Question and answer 95 is particularly helpful here. What is idolatry? 
Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Now, that's a very general answer, isn't it? But that's actually a good thing. Let's focus on that word trust. Idolatry happens when we trust in created things as the ultimate source of something. We can trust created things as the ultimate source of our life or the ultimate source of our happiness, our income, our well-being, our joy, our personal fulfillment, our ultimate purpose, you name it. Of course, it's true that God often uses created things to give us things like an income or well-being. The problem is we so easily twist that. We so easily trust and adore those created things in the place of God. Let's look now at the example of idolatry that we, that we have in our reading from Acts 19 to see this in action. And this passage really does show us some profound things about the human heart when it comes to idolatry and how it works. So the scene is the city of Ephesus. The people of Ephesus worshipped the god Artemis. And there was a huge temple to Artemis there. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But of course, the Apostle Paul traveled all throughout Ephesus and the surrounding area of Asia Minor. And the book of Acts says that uh, through the power of Christ, he won many people for the Lord. Many people converted to Christianity. These converts to Christ stopped worshiping false gods like Artemis and started worshiping the one true God. And you can see what kind of effect that had on one particular worshiper of Artemis. His name was Demetrius. He was a silversmith. He made little silver shrines of Artemis' temple. Acts 19 gives us a good look at Demetrius' heart. He viewed his business as the ultimate source of his income and prosperity. In his mind, this was the source of his purpose in life. It's what gave him feelings of self-worth. It's what gave him fulfillment and stability for the future. He trusted in this great temple here in Ephesus. He trusted in his skills as a craftsman for his well-being. His entire reputation was bound up in his career. His very life and identity were centered on Artemis and the things that appeared to flow from her. And that's why he loved her instead of God. And that's why he was greatly concerned about Paul stealing worshippers away from Artemis. Now that was Demetrius. But we can do the very same thing with pretty much any created thing. And we don't need a temple or a physical idol like uh, Artemis. So you can tell by Demetrius' words in Acts 19 that he doesn't care so much about Artemis. He cares mostly about his own personal income and wealth and well-being. See, money and his business is actually the real idol for Demetrius. The goddess Artemis just created the illusion that he was fulfilling some kind of higher purpose. 
And since money was the real idol, it shows us that we are just as much capable of that same idolatry as Demetrius without actually worshiping some sort of physical statue. See, we can pretty much substitute the temple of Artemis for any number of idols we are prone to in this life. So we need to ask ourselves, what am I ultimately living for? What is my highest joy in life? What do I view as the ultimate source of my enjoyment? What do I love more than anything else and anyone else? Now, to our fallen minds, it might seem wise to worship created things. It certainly did to Demetrius. It seemed wise to worship Artemis. After all, he did gain a lot of wealth and prosperity. He was well respected for his work and gained the praise of people for his skill. He seemed to get a lot of fulfillment out of it, too. Seeing all that, someone might think, well, why would he not worship Artemis and his business associated with her? Look how much he gained from it. We could easily transfer that sentiment to, to, to today. That's because Demetrius's thinking and lifestyle pretty much describes to a T your average Canadian. We can insert whatever we want in the place of Artemis. It could be a relationship, a career, a possession, a talent, you name it. What is the problem with worshiping created things like this? Created things are never capable of taking the place of God. Created things cannot bear the burden of being made the ultimate source of our income, happiness, well-being, prosperity, or fulfillment. And they are not worthy of our ultimate trust and devotion. And if we do make them as such, they will fail you in the end. That's what we must understand. All idols will fail you in the end. To illustrate this further, how created things cannot take the place of God, we can take a look at our uh, reading from Psalm 34. And Psalm 34 is a psalm of praise to the Lord. David expresses that the Lord is to whom he praises, and the Lord is the source of all good. Now, what would happen if we took the word Lord in Psalm 34 and replaced it with a potential idol? You can try it with anything that you might be tempted to love more than God. Well, let's take a classic example, the example of, of money. I'm just going to read the first number of verses Psalm 34, and put, I'm going to insert money in place of the Lord. I want you to hear how this sounds. I will bless money at all times. The praise of money shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in money. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify money with me. Let us exalt money uh, together. I sought money, and it answered me, and delivered me from all my fears, those who look to money are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. You see how empty that is? Of course, 
Money can't take the place of God. Any created thing cannot stand in the place of God, but fallen humans try to do it all the time, and our hearts are so prone towards it. Remember, all false gods will eventually fail us, and we should ask, what happens to us when they do? Well, look again at Acts 19. Demetrius, by and large, had a lot going for him. He had a successful business. He had wealth, prestige, stability. He's, by and large, a decent and productive member of society. And it all seemed to come from this idol. But what happened to, to Demetrius when his idol was threatened? Well, his very world was shaken to the core Suddenly, his very identity and prosperity were at stake. You see, the, the idol, uh, idolatry only led to fear and anxiety at the prospect arose that his idol might let him down. And all idolatry will ultimately lead to great fear and insecurity because the idol cannot deliver in the end. And created things can so easily change. So that's the first thing. Demetrius's idolatry led to fear and anxiety. But we see here it also led to something else. It also led to fierce anger. Ordinarily, these craftsmen were probably decent citizens of Ephesus who went about their daily business without seriously harming other people. He was pretty a hard-working guy, I think, it looks like. But what happened when their source of prosperity was threatened? They became enraged. They pretty much started a riot in Ephesus. Paul's friends feared for Paul's own life. Idolatry turned them into monsters. This still happens today. Here's a case in point. I know it's a little bit old, but I still like how this matches with Acts 19 so well. I grew up near Vancouver, B.C., and all my life I've cheered for the Vancouver Canucks. Winnipeg Jets for a close second. In 2011, I watched them make their Stanley Cup finals run with great excitement. But what was the Canucks' marketing slogan during that playoff run? It was this. This is what we live for. This is what we live for. And I think for a lot of people cheering at that time, it was true. That's what they were living for. But what happened? The Canucks lost in Game 7. They did not win the Cup. When that happened, the very thing people were living for let them down. So they became angry and destructive. They started a riot in Vancouver, just like the one in Ephesus in Acts 19, and only worse, the city burned that night. Huge amounts of destruction happened. Ordinarily, these were decent people, citizens of uh, B.C. But their idol let them down, and they rioted. That's where idolatry will lead us. It'll lead us to anger and hurtful behavior in the end. And so make no mistake, idolatry is ugly. There are no, no two ways about it. It does not promote life, but always destroys it. This is why we have to understand that God's law is so good. God's law is not a killjoy. He's not trying to take away our fun or or our joy. 
No, idolatry will suck away joy from our lives in the end. The only answer to our problem is to make God the center of our lives. To trust him alone as the ultimate source of everything good. To worship him alone. To love him above everything else. That brings us to our last point. Now, in order to see the beauty of worshiping the Lord alone, we first all need to understand who our God is. This is the Lord. He is unchanging, self-sustaining, completely faithful, immovable. He cannot be tempted by evil and will never do anything evil. He has life within himself, and he gives us life and breath and everything else. Nothing can shake the Lord, damage him, or catch him off guard. Nothing or no one can frustrate his plans. He is the overflowing fountain of all good and the source of every good gift that we can enjoy. And we could go on. That's quite a contrast to Artemis of the Ephesians. Only the true and living God provides us with a rock-solid foundation upon which to build our lives and to satisfy our deepest desires. It's because God is that God that David can confess what he does in Psalm 34. There he says, The Lord delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Well, fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And we too can confess the same thing because the Lord has not changed since the time that David wrote Psalm 34. He's the God who can, can, who can fulfill all his promises, for he is faithful and powerful. And as we more and more come to know God, to love him, to make him and his glory the purpose of our lives, and to trust in him above everything else, what happens to us? We begin to see that only this God, the Lord, only he can carry us through the storms and the sorrows and the heartaches of life. We, can be, we begin to see more and more that everything else in my life can be stripped away. But at the end of the day, I'm still okay because I still have my God who will not change. And it's true that God might use created things to give me health and prosperity. But with God there, with God on my side through Jesus Christ, I can lose my health, my job, my money, my business, my house, my possessions, my friends and my family. And yet still I have my God who is immovable. Because I have my God, I still have everything I need in the end. Because he is the God of life, the God of salvation, who's giving us eternal life through Jesus Christ. What a contrast to Artemis or any other idol we might make in our hearts. Our God is so great that even in death we cannot be shaken. You know, idols might seem to offer us so much pleasure at times in this life. But all that's going to certainly fail us at death. 
See, death is the great leveler. No idol can overcome death, no matter how great and glorious it appears to our eyes right now. Yet death is no match for the living God. This means that I might breathe my last breath of air and die, but my God is still there. He can never die. And he has the power to raise me from the dead, so I need never fear whether I die today, tomorrow, or a hundred years from now. Because one day, my God will raise me to life again through the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ. Even in death, the Lord is still your God, who will not fail you. Even in death, you cannot be shaken because your God is with you, even then. Don't you want to worship him alone? Give your life to serving him? It's worth it. Don't be afraid to give up your idols, to lose your life in him. You will find it again. He's the God who gives life. As David ends Psalm 34, he ends by saying, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Indeed, he has redeemed our lives through the blood of Jesus Christ. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in the Lord because he took care of our condemnation in the cross of Jesus Christ. See, look at what this God has done for you. He gave up his beloved son to death, placing the curse that was to be on you upon his own son. And God the Son went all the way to the cross to pay for your sins, to save you from eternal punishment. And God the Holy Spirit goes so far as to even live in you, to bring you safely to the end, to eternal life. You see who your God is. Like who is this God who is so giving and so loving when we did not deserve it whatsoever? No idol we could create in our hearts and our minds could possibly give so much and love us so much as this God of Scripture. So again, how could we not worship Him and Him alone? What kind of fruit does worshiping the Lord alone bring? Well, worshiping the Lord alone brings contentment. When you see and believe that God is the ultimate source of everything good, everything good that you might enjoy, and I can be patient and at peace, even when I don't get to enjoy some created thing that I really wanted to enjoy. I can see and I can know that although God allows me to enjoy created things here on earth, they are not the ultimate source of goodness and joy, but God is. We can trust that God will give us joy in abundance in the end. He will. I may have to wait for it. I may have to be patient, but it will come. And that's because God is going to give us eternal life through Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation says that in the New Jerusalem, there will be no temple for the Lord God, the Almighty, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb is its temple. This is what awaits us in eternal life. Somehow we will dwell, live, right in the very presence of God. 
and it is suggests even within God himself. And because we will live so close to our God, he will also give us joy forever in his presence. Loved, love your God with all of your heart. Amen. Let us now respond to the preaching of God's word by singing again from Psalm 34, this time from stanzas 4 and 7. <laughs> 